Hebrews chapter 13. The title of this message is In Love and On Mission. I like that title. In Love and On Mission. We're going to look at verses 15 and 16 today. Let's read them together and then we'll pray. Speaking of Jesus, in Hebrews 13, 15, the text says, Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And then verse 16, And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are pleased with us through the work of Jesus Christ. Thank you that we're accepted, that we're adored, that your wrath and your standard has been satisfied through the cross. And yet we still understand that we need to and we want to live lives that are pleasing to you and the practicalities of them. We really do. We want to glorify you in the way that we live. And so, Lord, speak to us about this today. We ask that you would have our hearts, Lord. It's third service. These people are on mission. They're down for it. But we would say even more, Lord, have our hearts. Speak to us. Do a good work in us, Lord. Make us a people who are less self-absorbed and less selfish and more concerned with your glory and your kingdom, with your mission and your purposes in the world. We ask this together and we submit ourselves to your word and to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're told here in verse 15 that because of who Jesus is, what he's done, we ought to be continually offering up a sacrifice of praise that is a fruit of lips to give thanks to his name. Thankfulness is being dealt with here. Because of all that we've seen about the person of Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews, that he's the, from chapter one, the full and final revelation of God, that he's the exact representation of God, that he's better than the angels, that he's better than Moses, that he's better than Melchizedek, that he's better than the priesthood and the high priest and the temple and the sacrifices, that he is our high priest and our intercessor and our anchor, and he is the one that brings us into the holy presence of God. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise that is a fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. That give thanks to his name. Now, we are a culture that values thankfulness, aren't we? You see this all the time. I mean, we, we just do. We value thankfulness. We even say thank you when you probably shouldn't say thank you. For example, Starbucks. Maybe some of you guys went to Starbucks this morning. You go into Starbucks, you order your coffee, and it's not Starbucks, it's four bucks or maybe five bucks if you get the venti. It's big bucks when you're getting your drinks at Starbucks. And you go and you get your drink, and they just completely ripped you off and gouged your eyes out, and you get your venti drink for five bucks, and what do you do? You say, oh, thank you. Just as happy as can be. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. See you tomorrow for another ripoff. (laughs) And yet, because we value thankfulness in our culture, and it's good to do, thank you for my $6 coffee. It's weird. (laughs) And yet, it's indicative of the fact that we as a culture value an attitude of gratitude. So much so, we are continually instructing our children to be thankful, aren't we? Everybody knows the universal saying. You say to your kids, what should you say? 
Oh, thank you. All kids know this. We're always teaching our kids, what do you say? And they all know from like two months old, thank you. They understand this. In fact, we're so serious about instructing our children in thankfulness. It's one of the few areas where we'll let other people correct our kids. Because normally you correct my kid, I'm going to slap your face. You know what? Get your own kid. That's my kid. You go get your own kid and be mean to him. I'll be mean to my own kid. But when it comes to thankfulness, we let anybody do it. You know what I mean? What do you say, little kid? Yeah, tell him thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks for helping my kid. You know, this is important in our culture. So much so that we think adults that don't say thank you are weird, right? Adults that don't say thank you, we're like, dude, what is wrong with you? It's like people that can't say I'm sorry. There's something fundamentally and deeply wrong with an adult that doesn't say I'm sorry or doesn't say thank you when they ought to. We're a culture that values thankfulness and you see it in every way. And what we see in scripture is that Jesus values thankfulness. In Luke chapter 17, there were 10 lepers who were calling upon Jesus to be healed. And he said to them, go on your way and show yourself to the high priest. And and the idea being as they obeyed the Lord and went, they would be healed. Sure enough, as they went along, all 10 lepers were healed. But the text says that only one came back. Only one came back and fell at the feet of Jesus and gave him thanks. And Jesus was dumbfounded, so to speak. Jesus said, were there not 10 of you that were healed? Where are the other nine? He marveled at the lack of an attitude of of gratitude among those who had been touched by him. But for the one that turned back and was thankful, his thankfulness opened the door for him to experience more of Jesus and the work of Jesus. In fact, Jesus says to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. He had already been physically healed. We're talking about spiritual salvation now. He experienced infinitely more of the Lord than the other nine who failed to be thankful simply because he had the attitude of gratitude and Christ honors that. With such sacrifices, God is pleased. God is pleased with the sacrifice of thanksgiving. The psalmist understood this and in Psalm 69, he said, I will praise the name of God with song." and shall magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hooves. The psalmist understood that a genuine attitude of thankfulness would be more pleasing to God than a religious display or a routine sacrifice. That what God was really looking for was a genuine heart that responded with this. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for what you've done. Thank you for what you're doing. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you will do. It is explicit that this is the right response from the New Testament. 1 Thessalonians 5 says, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Don't miss the profundity of that. Because we are a people who are always wondering, what is God's will? What's God's will for my life? What's God's will for my marriage, for my ministry, for my kids, for my work, for this weekend? God, what is your will in this situation? And here it's narrowed down to the basics. God's will for you is that you would have an attitude of gratitude. That puts us in the right place. That opens up our lives to a fuller expression of the work of Christ. And why wouldn't we be thankful? I mean, we were on our way to hell. 
For real. We were once separated from God, hostile to God, rebellious to God, alienated from God. And we have been delivered from the domain of darkness, snatched out of the hands of hell, and delivered into the kingdom of the beloved Son. We who were once in darkness now dwell in the light. We were once who were far off, have been brought near. We were broken off, have been adopted and adored and accepted. And we have a hope and we have new life and we have heaven to look forward to. And so the right attitude is an attitude of gratitude, very simply, that is thankful. And I really think that this is something that God is looking for from us. With such sacrifices, God is pleased. There was a time in Kate and I's life when we just felt like we were choking on the blessings of God. we just gotten married and things were awesome. Any way that you could look at it and measure, we were getting blessed by God. So much so we were almost embarrassed. People would be like, how are you? And be like, we're, we're pretty cool. <laughs> like so blessed, it was embarrassing. And you know, when that was going on in our lives, we were young Christians and growing in our faith. And we started to ask, why is this? Why are we so blessed? And because we're just like you, we immediately went to this default. It must be because we're so awesome. God must be blessing us so much because we're so awesome. And I can remember the God of the universe speaking to us, saying, I'm not blessing you because of you. I'm blessing you in spite of you. It's not because you're awesome. It's because Christ is awesome that you're being blessed. And we're like, oh, okay, cool. So... And then we're like, what do we do? We're being, there must be some sort of response. And, and so what do we do? Well, we'll do more from you, God. We'll, get, we'll do more for you. We'll get really busy serving you. And, and we thought that that was the right response. And I can remember the Lord just saying, calmate. Just calm down. Escúchame. Listen to me. And the Lord spoke to us and said, all I'm looking for is thankfulness. I'm your father. I love you. It delights me to bless you. Just say thanks, Dad. That changed our lives. That changed our lives. We started counting the blessings of God, rejoicing over the blessings of God, thanking Jesus in every little thing in our lives. And I'm telling you, it was transformative for us. And it opened our lives up to a fuller work of God. God does not bless you because you're awesome. He blesses you because he's awesome. And he blesses us in spite of us. And he blesses us for his own glory. And what we need to do is just say thanks, Dad. So the right response is this sacrifice of praise, spoken of in verse 15. But that's not the whole response. There is also the sacrifice of service. Because of who Christ is and what he's done, there's a sacrifice of praise, but there's also the sacrifice of service. Now, these are two sacrifices that transcend the two covenants. In other words, we know that in the old covenant there were animal and other sorts of sacrifices, but that Jesus Christ is a sacrifice that is satisfied once and for all, and we don't sacrifice animals or anything else anymore. But there are these two sacrifices that transcend the covenants. They're New Testament sacrifices that we offer up. First Peter says, You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And two New Testament sacrifices that we are to be doing continually are the sacrifice of praise we just spoke of, 
and the sacrifice of service that we will speak of. And with these sacrifices then, God is pleased. We begin to live a life that pleases God in the practicalities of living. Now, theoretically, the latter flows out of the former, okay? A sacrifice of service flows out of a sacrifice of praise. If we're loving Jesus Christ, then we'll start to love others is what I'm getting at. That's the theological and hence the theoretical perspective. It's a right perspective that we're to take care of the vertical, loving Jesus Christ, committing to him, and then he will work on us in the horizontal of loving one another and being committed to one another in brotherly love. So the priority is, Jesus put it this way. Here's the first and foremost commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, but the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the second flows out of the first. Ministry flows from intimacy. Loving others comes from loving God. Now, I want us to think about our lives this morning individually and corporately. Okay, as, as individuals and as a church, as a community, as a family of faith together. And I want us to do so by thinking about the simple chart. Speaking of humanity in general, usually humanity starts out with an attitude that is indifferent to God, indifferent to God. But where we want to go is to the place of loving God. We want to grow toward loving God. Also, humanity is often in a place of being indifferent to others, displayed over here. But where we want to move is toward a place of loving others. That's where we want to go. Now, what this gives us are four quadrants to be a total nerd, okay? Four quadrants, quadrant one, two, three, and four. But these are helpful for us to think about life a little bit. For example, if somebody or a society is in quadrant three, down there in the area of being indifferent to God and indifferent to others, then what you have is a society and a people that are given to aborting and euthanizing. They're indifferent to God and his standards. They're indifferent to people and their value. And it yields a society that aborts and euthanizes. That's quadrant three. But if you move up to quadrant one, loving God, but indifferent, pe- but indifferent to people, what you have there then are Christian separatists. They're Christians, they're loving God, but they're indifferent to others. They're huddled together waiting for the rapture, hoping they don't have to deal with the drama of this world. Christian separatists. We are not called to be that. Additionally, if you go down to quadrant four, you discover people that are loving others, but they're indifferent to God. That's secular humanism, which is a major ideology in our country and in our world. Humanism, esteeming humanity, but being indifferent to God. Where we want to be in life is in quadrant two. We want to be in the part of the chart that represents a life that is loving God and loving others. And we want our life to be on a trajectory so that it's heading right off the upper right corner of that chart. Ever loving God more and as a result, ever loving people more. And if we were going to be really bold and brave today, we might come up with little stickers and plot our lives out 
Here's where I am. This is what quadrant I'm living in. Really, not theoretically, practically. This is where I'm living. We're all doing that in our mind right now, but as a corporate body, as Reality Carpinteria, we also need to do that. We need to ask ourselves, where are we as a church in loving God and loving others? Loving God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Where would we be on this chart if we were going to be honest? Where we need to be is in love and on mission. In love and on mission. In love with Jesus Christ and on his mission in the world. Because we're loving the Lord, we find ourselves loving people. Because we love the Lord, we want to be on his mission. And his mission blesses people. We want to be in love and on mission. Now, as I said, the former should flow, or the latter, excuse me, should flow from the former. We should be loving people as the outflow of loving God. But I think it's dangerous to presume upon that. I think it's dangerous just to say, I'm going to concentrate on loving God and let the people thing come. Why? Because we, as the messed up people that we are, hijack that process all the time. We hijack it with bitterness. We hijack it with conflicts. We hijack it with unforgiveness. We hijack it with selfishness. So I don't think we could take it for granted, though it's a theological truth that the more you love Jesus, the more you love people. I think we need to be active about it. We need to be purposeful. We need to cultivate it. We need to say, I'm going to be purposeful in life about loving God, and I'm going to be purposeful in life about loving others, about being in love and being on mission. And what we discover in the New Testament is that a life that pleases God is one that is lived both exaltationally and incarnationally. I'll explain. Exaltationally and incarnationally. A life that pleases God is one that exalts Jesus Christ continually through thanks and praise. It's a worshiping life. But it is also a life that is incarnational. It is a life that lives like Christ through sacrificial service. It's exaltational. It exalts Christ through praise and thanksgiving. It's incarnational. It lives like Christ through sacrificial service and giving. You want to live a life that is both. Exalts Jesus and looks like Jesus. We want to be careful to worship and adore and direct our lives according to the Jesus of Revelation 19. The Jesus who is coming again, who's coming again on Cavallo Blanco, who's coming again in glory. The Jesus who is coming again, whose eyes are a flaming fire, who's wearing the royal diadem, whose robe has been dripped in blood, who has a tattoo on his thigh that says Lord of Lord and King of Kings, and he's coming with a sword out his mouth to rule and to reign. We want to adore, we want to exalt, we want to order our lives according to this Jesus. But not at the expense of the Jesus in John 13. Jesus is the coming king of Revelation 19. But he is also the humble servant of John 13. He is also the one who girded himself and took the lowest place in the household and washed the filthy feet of his friends, the disciples. Both Jesuses need to be realized. And we exalt and worship the Jesus of Revelation 19. And we imitate and model the Jesus of John 13. That's a complete and full Christian life. 
Thankfulness is a right response to be sure, but it's not the whole response. And this next point that I'll make comes partly from our sinful nature and partly from our cultural conditioning. We have a tendency to let blessings stop with us. Uh, you know, because we're selfish in our nature. But number two, because culture has conditioned us this way. If you're saying thank you for something, it must be because it was for you, right? Like Christmas or your birthday or whatever it was. Oh, thank you. It's for me. And it's to bless you and it's for your use. Now, there's a little disconnect when it comes to an attitude of gratitude toward God because we need to remove ourselves from that thinking. The blessings of God are not merely for us. And salvation is not all about us. God blesses us that we might be a blessing to others. This is fundamental and foundational. We are blessed that we might bless others. We are not blessed merely to enjoy the blessings of God. That's just a component. But we are to be vessels of the blessing of God. Stewards of the grace of God in its manifold forms. We are blessed that we might be a blessing. And what we realize then, salvifically speaking, or with regards to salvation, is that salvation is not just about you and I and us going to heaven. There's more to it. That's part of it, but there's more to it. Allow me to illustrate. There's this this common phrase that we use all the time in life and in evangelism and in hard times. And we say to people, and I've said it to thousands of people, literally. We say this. We say, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. And that's a true statement. And that's a good statement. That is good and that is true. God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But there's another statement that is fuller, that is more full, that is more true, if I can say that. And I came across it recently in some reading and it goes like this. God loves his son, Jesus Christ, and has a wonderful plan for him to bring all the nations to his feet as Lord of all. And he loves you and me enough to give us a place in it. Now look what that did. What that did was take the focus off of you and me and put it on Jesus Christ. That is a Christocentric perspective, a perspective that has Christ at the center, as opposed to being anthropocentric, people at the center, or egocentric, me at the center. What we want is Jesus at the center. And the right understanding is that God so loves his son that he has an awesome plan for him to bring all the nations together in praise toward him, fulfilled in Revelation 7. And he loves us enough that we have a place in it. We want this Christocentric, focused on Jesus Christ perspective. And when we get it, that it's about Jesus and the nations worshiping him and not just us going to heaven, then that perspective awakens us to the fact that there's more than us. It awakens us to the fact that there's more than us and it keeps us from being blessing stoppers. It keeps us from clogging up the conduit, so to speak. And it opens up our lives to blessing others as God blesses us, which is God's plan and God's mission. We begin to pursue loving others to the glory of Christ when we have this Jesus-centered focus and theology. Now, 
my assessment of us, and I say us together because I'm a member of this congregation too. My assessment of us is that the area we need to grow in is verse 16. That we need to not neglect in doing good and sharing. As a church, as a local expression of the church, this is, I believe, the area where we need to grow in. You know, we're pretty good at the sacrifice of praise thing. God has taught us that. It wasn't always that way here, but, but God has done something neat here with regards to worship. And God is in our midst when we worship. And the sacrifice of praise thing for us as a local church, it's pretty cool. We'll grow more and there's more to grow in, but it's been pretty cool. Not for everybody. Some of you are not into it. Some of you, as soon as the message is over, you hit the doors. And I understand that because I was once that person. My wife and I started going to our church in our early 20s. We made sure that we showed up when the first part of the music was done. And we stayed for the message and we left as soon as it was over. Made sure we didn't hear any other music. The happy clappy thing just wasn't for us. We just weren't into it. You know what I mean? The, the, the word of God though. That was feeding and nourishing our souls and we were just hanging on every word and the theology and the Bible we loved. But the worship thing. But then I discovered that the more sermons I sat under, the more Bible I read, the more I discovered Jesus, the more I wanted to offer up the sacrifice of praise. All of a sudden, my perspective changed. My priorities changed. Our priorities changed. And now instead of hitting the door, We wanted to hit the floor. We wanted to be on our faces in the presence of the holy God of the universe. So I understand those of you that slip out the back door, but I'm telling you there's more. There's more of Jesus to be discovered. And it pleases him when we do offer up the sacrifice of praise. But generally speaking as a church, I think we need to grow in verse 16. Here's why I think that. Listen very carefully. This is going to be painful. The reason I think we need to grow in doing good and sharing is because of our current situation with the city and, and the possibility, the, the, the possibility. It's not, I don't think it's going to happen, but the possibility, you know, that we, we could have lost um, our ability to occupy this building, that we would have had to have gone elsewhere. That that possibility even exists and can be entertained in the community means that we need to grow in doing good and in sharing. Listen, we should be so impacting the city and its population that it would terrify them to see the local church go. It should be unthinkable to the city or any segment of the population thereof, the reality would ever be expelled from it. We should so be caring for the poor, for the marginalized, for the disenfranchised. We should so be loving and caring for, we should so be meeting all sorts of different needs in the community that it would be unthinkable that they would ever let us go. There'll always be opposition, don't get me wrong. I mean, Jesus raised the dead and fed thousands and they still nailed him to a cross. There's always going to be opposition, but there should be a tangible, discernible 
measurable positive impact on the city, the community, and culture because the church is here. That is God's will for the church and for the city. And it shouldn't just be discernible among Christians. Sure, we can get together and talk about all the people that have been saved and marriages have been saved and people that have gotten right and people that have been healed of diseases. But it should be obvious to the non-Christian. The non-Christian should look at the local expression of the church and say, you know what? I'm not really into all their Jesus stuff, but they are meeting so many needs in the community. We need them and we want them. Please don't let them go. Tim Keller, a Presbyterian pastor in New York City, said this. He said, we should so serve the people and the city that if we left, the city government would have to raise taxes to meet the needs that we once met. If we left, the city government should have to raise taxes because we are meeting so many needs. I think we need to grow in this area. I think this is where the Lord has us. I think we're right where the Lord wants us to be. I think we're entering into a new season corporately and individually where the Lord is saying, okay, how will you bless the city? How will you bless Carpinteria? How will you bless Santa Barbara? How will you bless Ventura and Ojai and Oxnard? How will you be a blessing to the coastlands? What we start to realize is that it's not enough for Christians to simply live a good life as individuals in society. We need to live lives that transform society. It's not enough and it's not Christianity to say, okay, I'm going to be a good Christian. I'm going to be in my Christian bubble. I'm going to wait for the rapture and I'm not going to deal with any drama. That's not Christianity. We should live lives that are transformative to such a degree that non-believers sit up and take notice. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, let your good deeds shine before men in such a way that they may see them and glorify your Father who is in heaven. We should be transforming society through doing good and sharing deeds of compassion and service. Even Israel, when in exile to Babylon, wicked Babylon, the mother of all false religions, when Israel was in exile in Babylon, God gave them the protocol for how they were to interact with culture. He told them in Jeremiah 29, verses 4 through 7, he said to them, you guys are to seek the peace and the prosperity of Babylon. You're to seek the welfare of the community and the culture. Because through his remnant, through his people, he would work transformation as they sought it in their context. And if he called Israel to seek the peace and the prosperity and the well-being of Babylon, how much more is he calling the church of Jesus Christ to seek the peace and prosperity and well-being, the shalom of our cities, of our city, of our communities and our culture? And we do this not just for Christians. We are called to sacrificially serve believers and non-believers alike because there is something called common grace. God causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. 
God loves all people. He doesn't just love Christians. If you're here today and you're a Christian, and not all of you are, if you're here today and you're a Christian, you once rejected Jesus and he loved you. And you might be here today and you're not a Christian, but Jesus Christ loves you. He loves all people. And his church is to embrace common grace, shun what is contrary to the gospel, but seek for transformation in the culture. Tim Keller writing on Christian history says this, early Christian bishops in the Roman Empire were so well known for identifying with the poor and the weak that eventually, though part of a minority religion, they were seen as having the right to speak for the local community as a whole. The early church was so known to be more committed to and effective in helping the poor than was the Roman government or other cultural institutions. And unless that is true for us today as well, we should not expect cultural impact. If the church does not identify with the marginalized, it will itself be marginalized. That is God's justice. God always cares about the poor and the oppressed, the marginalized, the disenfranchised, widows and orphans in their distress. And what I I want us to ask ourselves as individuals and as a church is this. Do we even know who the marginalized are in our city? Do we even know who they are in Carpinteria? Santa Barbara and Ventura, elsewhere. Do we even know? Can we even identify them? And can we even begin to understand them? Why are there hungry people in Carpinteria? Why are people impoverished in Santa Barbara? Why are people in shame in Ventura? Can we even identify who the marginalized are? I think God is calling us to do this. And if you wait for your church leadership to do it, you don't understand church. The Bible says that the job of the leadership in the church is to equip the members in the body to do the work of the ministry. That's the job of the leadership, to equip you guys to be on mission. If you're waiting for the church leadership to say, here's who the marginalized are and here's our game plan, you don't understand the church. You are the church. Now we are the church gathered and we are the church scattered and we need to understand both components. When we come together, we are the church gathered. And when we gather together, we are equipped, we are inspired, and we are challenged as we come face to face with Jesus. When we leave out these doors, we go into the mission field, we are the church scattered. And we are to do good, to share, and to care, to bring others face-to-face with Jesus. When we gather, we come face-to-face with Jesus. When we scatter, we're to bring others face-to-face with Jesus, those who need him most. It is important that we realize that the church is both gathered and scattered, and that we realize that the heart we cultivate in here as we worship Jesus together 
will be what we live out there as we represent Jesus to others. We need to be in love and on mission. And so, you know, I think we're right where God wants us to be as a church. And this is where he wants us to be. Sacrifice of praise, yes. Exaltation, yes. Sacrifice of doing good and sharing, incarnation, grow. We need to not be Christian separatists, huddled in our building, hoping for the rapture. We need to be in the building, rejoicing in the reality of Christ's coming. And we need to be in culture, manifesting the reality of Christ going, who went to people as a person. Jesus said, in the way that the Father has sent me, I now send you. How did the Father send him? In Luke 19, Jesus said, I came to seek and to save the lost. And in Mark 10, 45, he said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So Jesus comes to save and to serve. And there we have the vision of a two-handed approach. Evangelism and service. Preaching right and doing right. Proclaiming Christ and modeling Christ. One or the other is not sufficient. Christianity is both. We live exaltationally and we live incarnationally. We proclaim and we serve. Now evangelism takes precedent. The ultimate goal is to get people around the throne of God with every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping Jesus Christ. We don't merely want to dig wells for people. We want to take them to the well of living water from which they can drink and never thirst again. We don't merely want to feed people. We want to bring them to the bread of life who alone satisfies. And if one has to lead the way, it's the hand of evangelism. But the hand of service will often open up the door for proclamation. It's only through service that we will often earn the right to speak into people's lives. It's only after self-sacrificial Christ-like service that so often they want to hear. So sometimes self-sacrificial service will open up the door for evangelism. Other times they reject Jesus and you just serve them. And that's part of the calling on the church. We serve people. God loves people. We serve whoever needs to be served and loved and cared for. We meet needs where they exist. Whether they accept Jesus or reject Jesus. Some of us err because when they reject Jesus, we want to call down fire. The disciples in Luke 9 were heading through a city with Jesus and the city rejected Jesus. And the disciples said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them now? And Jesus said, you don't know what kind of spirit you're of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Some of us err in that we want to call down fire on the non-believing world when we should be loving and caring and ministering Christ to them. Others of us err because we're more concerned with the plight of people than we are with the glory of God. 
And that's an error on the other side. We need a balanced approach to the Christian life, and that's what this text is saying. We are to continually offer up the sacrifice of praise, exaltation and proclamation, and the sacrifices of doing good and sharing, service and giving. And this is a balanced, biblical Christian life that is in love and on mission. Let's do it. Amen? Amen. Lord, help us. You've challenged us in a brand new way, in a brand new season. As a church, as individuals, you've challenged us. And so we ask for grace today. We know it's only by grace and by the empowering of the Holy Spirit that we can do anything. And so we humble ourselves before you, God. And we ask that you would help us. Lord, expand the capacity of our hearts to know you and to love you. And then ready our hands to serve you by serving people. Lord, help us with these things. We seek your will. We don't want to do busy work. We want to do God's work. And so lead us, Lord. Lead us tomorrow when we go to work. Lead us tonight when we're with our families. Lead us as we navigate the CUP with the city. Teach us to love these cities that you've called us to. Lord, teach us to love Goleta and Santa Barbara and Montecito and Summerlin. Lord, teach us to love and to serve Carpinteria and La Conchita and Ojai. Lord, speak to us about what you want to do in Ventura and Oxnard and Camarillo and Thousand Oaks. Lord, these places want to be your people doing your work for your glory. Stick around. Let's listen to the Lord and love the Lord. Feel free to come and get on your face before him. Prayer team will be up here to your left if you need help. Let's press into Jesus. Jesus.